Today's topics are important ones. One of them came from a listener who asked me a simple question that I hadn't even thought to answer before. How do you manage your PTSD? In truth, my PTSD isn't something I've mentioned on this podcast yet, to my memory at least, but it is one that matters because when people walk away from toxic churches, cults or high demand groups, or even toxic relationships, post-traumatic stress disorder, complex post-traumatic stress disorder, and its lesser acknowledged cousin, religious trauma syndrome, are often stowaways in the baggage we carry with us. No one likes a diagnosis. So perhaps I should talk about my journey with PTSD a little more. But here is my strong encouragement for other sufferers out there, and it's taken me a while to be able to say this with my whole heart. There's no shame in having it. The shame doesn't belong to you or your brain for doing what it needed to do to protect itself. The shame belongs with your abusers and their enablers. So breathe in, breathe out slowly. Now, this is a handy trick I learned from my therapist. You don't get so lightheaded if you concentrate more on the out breath. You're welcome. Breathe in, breathe out slowly, and remember that you are wonderful, you are strong, you're a survivor, and you are not to blame. Dr. Anika Camilla Mulzak gives us the clinical down low on this insidious disorder today. In future episodes, I'll be bringing you the hope and I guess the life long after um, diagnosis and therapy and, and I guess some honest moments too. Dr. Anika also talks about something really important in this double episode. The Black Lives Matter protests aren't lighting up the news cycle anymore, but systemic racism isn't over yet either. My heart has always been to pass the mic to people of colour on this issue because I don't want to be another whitey getting up on a soapbox to talk about how bad racism is when there are some seriously important voices that need to be heard on this ongoing issue. Dr. Anika is one of them. Clinical psychologist, woman of colour and general hero who pioneered the Race Positive program, she's here today to talk about both of these important issues and I can't wait for you to hear it. Uh, I want to give a special thanks to Dr. Anika for clearing her schedule to talk to me today as well as the person on Twitter who actually recommended her when I put the shout out to somebody who could talk uh, talk to these um, both of these issues. Being trauma informed is so important not just for people who are leaving church but also for people who have been affected by systemic racism. So yes special double episode today I'm Kit Kennedy and this is Unchurchable. Hello and welcome to another episode of Unchurchable. I am here with Dr. Anika Camila Malzak. How are you today, Dr. Anika? I'm doing well. Greetings from New York City. New York City, oh, the, the big apple, the place we all dream of going and <laughs> drinking Cosmos and wearing fabulous heels, but uh, I'm sure the reality is a little less glamorous most days. <laughs> <laughs> now, I um, I actually, we came across each other when I put the call out on Twitter because um, of a few listener questions that I'd received about post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and so I put the call out and somebody recommended you and then I saw on your website the incredible work that you've done with uh, race relations and trauma and all sorts of things. So I thought this was too good to go past. So we're actually going to do an extra long episode today. So we're going to talk about race positive and then we're going to talk about post-traumatic stress disorder. 
But first, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you kind of got into this space? Sure, of course. Well, first, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here and to talk to you and your listeners. Uh, this is a topic that means a lot to me, and I yeah. am excited for any opportunity <laughs> to share about my thoughts and feelings around it. But I have... Um, I started Raise Positive in about, I think, 2018 was sort of our official mm-hmm. launch date. And for me, I found that so often conversations around race were quite unproductive. People, I noticed, yeah. uh, would often walk away feeling worse than they did when they started. And I didn't see the mm-hmm. point of that. And I wanted to help change it. I felt that race and racism, they're just such important things that we have to talk about. And if we can't do it well, then we're never really going to make the kind of progress and change that we needed. So I wanted to fix that as best as I could. Yeah. And as a psychologist, you know, I have, a, I have a doctor in clinical psychology. So as a psychologist, I felt that, you know, I believe that healing comes when we talk. When people are able to talk things out, healing and change and growth happens. And so I felt that it's important that we talk and many people shy away from discussing race and racism for some of the reasons I cited before, like it goes haywire really quickly, but also people, (laughs) but also I think people feel unskilled, right? They, they, they think, I don't know what to say, or I don't want to offend anybody, or I've tried it before and it didn't work well, or I just freeze Mm -hmm. up. And so I wanted to give, help people feel equipped to feel empowered and to feel engaged around these topics by giving them some practical skills for how they can go about doing it. And the thing that makes race positive, I think one of the things that makes it unique is that it's a very strength-based approach to this conversation. Oftentimes, I have found that people approach it from a deficit perspective where what don't I know, what can't I do, what shouldn't I say? Um, (laughs) And it really, I think if we start from a strengths-based approach, which is what do I know already? What can I do? What what have I said that actually was appropriate and helpful? And lean into those strengths, we can transfer that even into the really messy parts of talking about race. So that's sort of the heart behind uh, race positive and just really providing workshops and opportunities for consulting yeah. and support to people, uh, educators, leaders, wherever they are around navigating mm. them, their team and themselves on this topic. That just sounds wonderful. And I'm, I'm reading, <laughs> I'm reading from your bio here. Um, a young black female professional of faith from an immigrant family <laughs> raised in New York. I mean, talk about intersectionality. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a rich life experience, uh, just packed into the first half of one sentence. So, you know, you've, you've certainly got a lot to offer here. Um, I think it, I, I find it interesting that you started race positive. Uh, two years ago, and mm-hmm. it was before the Black Lives Matter movement really kind of lit up this whole um, this whole conversation. Yeah, I find it really interesting when you're talking about the deficit based conversation versus the positive conversation, and that's a really important switch up, isn't it? Can you explain the impacts of of you know when we're using deficit based language around race awareness and racial awareness and racism absolutely i think you know when we're starting from a place of deficit you are only focused on what you lack and when you're mm-hmm. focused on what you lack you're less likely to a pay attention to what's being said to you you're less yeah. likely to take risk right to ask questions to be engaged yeah. in any real way you're really focused on 
safety, on protecting yeah. yourself, on withholding for fear of yeah. being, you know, shamed or outed or something that is unpleasant. Yeah. And so I don't see how that's helpful, right? I don't see mm -hmm. how that gets us where we need to go, which is being able to openly and honestly reflect on these hard things and then figure out how can we move forward in a way that actually makes it better. So for me, if we're approaching it from a strengths-based approach, then we're saying there are things that you already do quite well. And okay. I was inspired from that lens um, with some research and some study into positive psychology, which is where I am. Um, mm -hmm. They, I don't know if your viewers are, or your listeners are familiar with it, but it's a brand of psychology that basically says health is not the absence of illness. It's also the presence of wellness. And they argue yeah. that we can't just focus on mitigating um, distress and reducing mm -hmm. illness. We also have to help people consider what's already right with them and how can we yeah. help them to foster and lean into those. And so I loved that idea of really expanding what health meant and yeah. really helping people to tap into things that are already good and right with them. And I'd read through a lot of the literature on positive psych but very little almost none of it at the time I was reading connected it to race and I was already passionate yeah. about race and I thought well why can't I do that why can't we just pull some of these things here into the conversation about race so people feel more equipped to do it and yeah. so that's sort of the lens that I've taken which is where we're saying let's not start from a place of what we're lacking and focus on safety and protecting but let's come from a place of curiosity and when you're curious yeah. you you don't there are no stupid questions because you just don't know and you but you want to um, <laughs> and so there's a willingness there to participate and a willingness to be vulnerable and a willingness to not have all the answers but a desire to stay engaged even if and and that I think is such a beautiful way to navigate this, yeah. this talk. Yeah. Now, there's, there's a couple, it's really um, interesting what you're saying there because I guess there's cultural awareness and there's race, 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 I'm doing well <laughs> with the word this morning because it's early, I had my coffee. <laughs> there's ra racial awareness, but there's also, I guess, racial humility yes. around that awareness, I think, when it comes to people um, like me who, who want to be allies in a better way. And I know that there's a lot of us out there, um, especially this year, who've been con kind of confronted with the, the nuanced ways in which we didn't realise we were contributing to a problem. Mm. And we're like, okay, how can, we, how can we be better here? How can we be better allies? How can we understand more? Um, I suppose that's, that's an element of humility that um, is Im important when it comes to um, working together to eliminate um, you know, racism in all mm -hmm. its forms. So th there, there is a bit of fear around asking yeah. questions. I think, and um, for good reason, right? That 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 fear is not, you know, sort of made up. It's it's legitimate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you, you don't want to come across as a redneck. You don't want to yeah. say the wrong thing. Um, but I suppose. It, when, when you are kind of approaching this topic with maybe it's a friend or a loved one who is a person of colour and, and you, you're nervous about asking questions and coming across the wrong way, what are, what are some tips that you can give people who want to be better allies? That's a great question. I think the first thing to do is to listen with the intent of understanding and speak with the intent of being understood. 
And what mm-hmm. I mean by that is when you're listening for understanding, your your defenses go down because you're not trying to come up with a rebuttal. <laughs> you're not <laughs> trying to find a gotcha moment for you to be like, haha, I knew that was a flaw in your plan. You know, it's you really are trying to understand what makes that person think and feel the way that they do. So you really are engaged yeah. with them. And when you're speaking to be understood, if someone is saying, I don't get it, or they are coming back with retorts that don't fall in line with what you're communicating, rather than yeah. get defensive or aggressive or disconnect, you're saying, okay, there must be something here that's getting lost in the sauce. How can I rephrase yeah. this or approach this in a manner that improves their ability to understand what I'm actually saying? Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it becomes yeah. more of a collaborative approach than one that is combative. Yeah. So, okay, that's that's a real key, I think, because sometimes like it's, it's really easy to kind of enter a conversation wanting to put your own view across, but with something that you haven't experienced, like racism, mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're coming from a point of privilege, um, it, it can be it can be quite confronting. Um, so sometimes reframing and what somebody is saying so that you make sure that you're understanding it can be a better way than kind of presenting your your viewpoint. I Absolutely. suppose. Absolutely. Um, but that's that's a trick to master, isn't it? It is. <laughs> It It really is. It's a trick to master for sure. And I think it's also requires a commitment, right? Because it's very easy in these topics um, and in these conversations to get um, caught up in what I call red herrings. So if you've ever been in a a very silly argument with someone, uh, which we've all had at some point in our lives where, you know, maybe you're talking about why, I don't know, butter pecan is the best flavor of ice cream and then they're suddenly saying and you always get a waffle cone and then all of a sudden you're arguing about waffle cones and the point of the conversation was about ice cream flavors do you know and so these red herrings kind of get thrown into the conversation and you find yourself litigating things that have absolutely nothing to do with the point of the topic so my my second tip right to to pair it with this idea of of listening to understand and speaking with the intent of being understood is recognize a red herring and let it go like don't follow it down the rabbit hole because you will completely miss the point of the dialogue you will just there's so many things to litigate and not and often when somebody is not truly interested in having an honest conversation on these topics they will be masters of red herrings they will throw you all sorts of things that you will find yourself using all your energy and your time for and you know it's a good example of this that i can think of would be the argument here in the states around kneeling um during the national anthem and a lot of people you know were very upset about calling kaepernick kneeling and Mm -hmm. rather than talk about the purpose and the reasons behind his kneeling which was police brutality and the killings of unarmed black people in this country it became well do you love america or not (laughs) you know (laughs) or do you support our troops or not and it's like that is not even what this conversation is about but that's where all the attention and all the energy went to and so it suddenly shifted away from talking about racism and bias and policing to what does it mean to be a patriot and what does it mean Mm -hmm. to love america and do you or do you not support the troops none of which 
our points of the conversation that we were trying to have. And so I think if you are really trying to be engaged in these topics, you have to recognize that the red herrings are there for the very purpose of throwing you off and not to get you deeper into addressing the topic at hand or even resolving it. Do you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. Now, there's something that, um, you know, they talk about in in psychology or or various different sciences is that the body and the mind, Mm -hmm. it's all very set up to protect our own safety. Yeah. So when these ideas that confront us come into our sphere (laughs) our automatic reaction is to to fire up and defend or or to make ourselves safe and deflect and deny the conversation so i think oftentimes we're coming up against this and and what you're saying about red herrings um, and what you're saying about asking questions doesn't just apply to to race Mm -hmm. it? it applies to so many different groups of people that that might be marginalized or misunderstood yes so this is a really important skill to learn absolutely so how do you um i guess this is a side topic but how do you really um how do you become trauma aware i think when people are telling you about their experience that might be so foreign to you Mm -hmm. but so personal and so traumatic to them how do you approach that with a trauma-informed kind of, you know, skill set, I suppose? As a layperson um, or as a psychologist? I think as a layperson. Yeah. Because I think in this time, especially, I mean, 2020 has been one heck of a year. And <laughs> 20 I years think, in one. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, wow, we've just packed a whole decade worth of calamity <laughs> into just one short year or one really long year. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think we can be coming up against people's trauma and yeah. realise that in, in this time, um, because there's what we might be seeing is anger or what we might be seeing is um, is, is aggression. Yeah. But, but what that actually is is somebody just trying to cope with some really difficult stuff. So how do we, how do we you know, if we, we see that kind of hurt coming, yeah. um, how, do, how, do we, how do we do the right thing here? You know, that's a good question. And, and you're not going to like my answer because it's one of those it depends. <laughs> <laughs> kinds of answers but um but if i were to try my best to sort of offer some sort of universality i would say um almost have the the picture of a five-year-old and i'm not saying that people who are experiencing these things are immature i'm not implying anything like that i'm just merely mm-hmm. using it for um illustrative purposes and so yeah. if we are thinking of a five-year-old uh, in your life and they are upset about something um mm-hmm. A very astute adult, rather than yell at the kid um, and say, would you just stop it (laughs) or (laughs) just or be completely indifferent to the cries of the kid, even if they're thinking it's just a toy. Why are you so mad that you lost it? You're not going to care about that in 10 years, even if that's the feeling as an adult. Your response, I hope, to that five-year-old would be (laughs) to recognize that something important has been lost here. Right. Mm -hmm. And even if it weren't important to you, it clearly was important to them. And so you need to understand what was it that made it so special to that kid in the first place. And and by listening to that, asking for that information to be shared with you, being receptive to that information, 
you can then empathize because then it reminds you of things perhaps that are important to you that mm -hmm. you've lost and you can, you know, offer that support in a way that you may not if you just judged whatever it is that they were lamenting about, right? So in a similar mm -hmm. way, I think empathy is, the, is, is probably one of the first steps in doing this, which is where you are seeing this person is reacting to something that has been taken or has been done unfairly to mm -hmm. them. And they're reacting as anybody would who's experienced some sort of hurt in this way. Yeah. And so what you yeah. want to do is understand exactly what is this hurt? What has been taken? What has been done? And then connecting as best as you can with your own feelings of having had something denied or taken or yeah. done to you. So you can at least yeah. emotionally understand what's going on with them. Do you know? The details are, are important, but... But not for the purposes of connecting human to human. The emotion is what yeah. connects us human to human. And so I yeah. think starting with that empathy could be a great way. Um, truly listening and not trying to solve the problem, right? Because sometimes, yeah. again, with a five-year-old, you can be like, it's okay, I'll just get you another toy. It doesn't stop the crying because mm -hmm. the toy meant something, you know? <laughs> yes, um, yes, And yes. so just being like, oh, forget him. He's a jerk. Or, you know, he does that to everybody. Yeah. No one likes him anyway. Like, that doesn't resolve the fact that this person just got discriminated against on the job, you know, yeah. like that. So you really want to listen to what they're saying yeah. to you and not jump in and try to solve it for them or be a savior of some sort. Um, yeah. Okay. And so uh, yeah. So two really important things that you've raised there. One is not to minimize. Yeah. Um, because just because I don't see something doesn't mean that it isn't hugely, hugely meaningful and hugely hurtful exactly. and emotive to somebody else. Exactly. So not minimizing um, their experience is is huge. Um, and the yeah, so that's that I think is really um, <laughs> I've, I've observed because of course the Black Lives Matter thing happened, mm -hmm. and then there's a, a whole lot of people going, "Well, all lives matter." Classic uh, minimization. Yes. And something that we really need to avoid, like the plague in this time. Yes. Isn't it? Yes. Because it's extremely yeah. dismissive, right? It's like mm -hmm. somebody saying their mom passed and you're saying, well, all mothers matter. Like that is completely <laughs> heartless to do. And and the question was never about all mothers. We were talking about this particular mother. And that is why yeah. she deserves recognition right now, right? And so mm -hmm. to even even make that I feel it's a false equivalency it's sort of like mm. you know there's a reason when someone's talking about like a rare moon or something we're not commenting on the fact that it's dark outside at nighttime it's yeah. a given we get it we know it's night it's it's in the water <laughs> you know yeah. it's assumed <laughs> that it's nighttime if we're talking about the moon what now what is what is significant in this moment is the fact that it's a rare moon and much in the same way yeah. it's a given that all lives matter what we're talking about though is how this particular segment of the population is given less value than others and that's why we're raising them to to the spotlight yeah exactly and the other thing that you were talking about was not to be a savior mm -hmm. <laughs> we yeah okay so the white safety thing is an issue because <laughs> oh yeah and and i've kind of like i've wanted to because i'm white um, but I also want to be a good ally, sure. which doesn't mean steering the conversation myself. It means sharing the microphone and it means kind of asking people like you to come and, <laughs> and talk to us about what we can do better. Um, but yeah, the, the white savior complex is, is 
is something that I think needs addressing because, you know, to, to us, we can be well-intentioned yes. and trying to contribute in a healthy way to a very nuanced and complex conversation, but it can just come across as colonialism again. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, so, okay, so how do we who want to be the good allies mm -hmm. step into this space in a productive supportive healthy way that doesn't cross over into the savior complex that's a really good question and i think i want to just do a half step back and that was what you were saying about the idea of sharing their microphone and and i know that I, there might be some people listening who will sort of perhaps have really large eyes when i say this but i fundamentally believe that racism prejudice, discrimination, they, they affect all of us, not to the same degree, right? Um, and not in the same yeah. way, but they affect all of us. And therefore, I believe we are all responsible <laughs> yeah. for making this better, for eradicating it. And and so yeah. as a result, I think we all need to be speaking. Now, now, does that mean that white people don't have to do perhaps more listening than others yes they do need to have yeah. more listening than others but but silence is not an option here you know yeah and i think sadly or at least i fear maybe i should say that i fear <laughs> that some people will take that uh call to listen as a as a reason to check out or to not take up yeah. their role or not see their part in making this better because uh, they're mm -hmm. trying to make space right or or they'll say yeah. well i would love to follow but there's no one leading so i guess i can't do yeah. anything because if i try i'm going to be accused of taking over you know yeah. and yeah. and so my charge along the lines of you know it affects all of us therefore we're all responsible for eradicating it is that when you're approaching this topic and, 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 and trying to dismantle racism and systemic racism in all its forms, mm -hmm. I really encourage everyone to see this as an act of solidarity, not an act of charity. So if yeah. you're seeing yes. it as an act of charity, then you are going to approach it as the savior. <laughs> you yeah. are going to think of yeah. like, well, you know, I'm just using my privilege to help out these black and brown people who are having such a hard time. You know, I'm really it's, yeah. it's such a shame that they don't get to have as much as I do. But I can I can lend, you know, <laughs> oh. <laughs> when you approach it from that perspective. And again, you can be so well intentioned and charitable right at the core of yeah. it. But you can see how condescending and patronizing and just not there it can come across to other people mm -hmm. and in fact it undermines your mission because what you may find is that you then will take some time out where you'll be like oh my goodness i spent all day protesting i just need to like go away in my white world and just relax for a bit like you know what i mean um yes. and so you and so you you have this sort of seg you know this segmentizer compartmentalizing i should say of, mm -hmm. of your world and that defeats the point that completely defeats the purpose and so if you operate from a place of solidarity you see that racism and prejudice and bias it's an undermining the quality of your life too you want yeah. to have access to the best and brightest people in the world you want to live in yeah. a society that ensures that 
your teams and your neighborhoods and your organizations are doing everything that they can to mm-hmm. put more good into the world than bad and and put out the best products and have the best people. You want to have excellence in all yeah. the spheres that you, you inhabit. And if there's segments of the population that are being cut out, then you can never truly be the best, right? You can never yeah. truly reach any of that. And so you're being denied a whole lot of good things because these forces are allowed to go unchecked. So because you don't think you need to have anything denied you (laughs) in this way, you feel like this is your fight too. Do you see what I mean? And so when it's your fight, there is no, I'm going to take a break or patting on your back for being such a good ally today. It's really saying, you know what, that was wrong. And you're you doing this, you're making this noise right now is bothering me. It's, I know it's bothering yeah. other people, but I need you to stop it. <laughs> and yeah. so there's a different force that comes with it. There's a different conviction that comes with it um, when you approach yeah. it from that space. And so I, I would recommend starting there, seeing it as solidarity, not as charity. And yeah. and, and and secondly, that going to your point of, of sharing the microphone and listening more, I think educating yourself on these topics, right? Reading, understanding the historical pieces, how it didn't really end with slavery, that we still continue to see present day mm-hmm. manifestations of these things that are happening. How, you know, I, I don't think, I don't think white supremacy ever loses. It just changes the rules of the game. You know, yeah, I don't think it she- ever truly like gets defeated. It's just like, oh, okay, so you said I can't, I can, you can no longer deny me sitting anywhere I want on the bus. Like, I don't have to sit in the back of the bus. Okay, fine. We'll just cut all the buses, you know? Like, it just just changes the rules, you know? And so it just, it's the way that it manifests. And so I think that understanding how it's showing up in the present day allows you to be a better ally because now you can spot it. You can notice, wait a second, in my church, everybody here is white. And the music that, and even the few black people who are here, they they all sort of like the same music and there's no diversity in what we sing, you know? And when when a preacher comes in, he's always from this type of, you know, denomination or whatever and preaches in this style. But if he does this, then people get weirded out, you know? Like, you start thinking through, what is the, what does diversity truly look like? Um, And it's not in the space I'm inhabiting. Why is that? What's stopping that? And then you act. Do you know what I mean? Um, So, yeah. Yeah, I like that. Because one way, you know, one way to, to be able to, spot whether um whether people of color are feeling empowered in your congregation is to look at the music team Mm -hmm. Uh, and 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 see and this was just one thing that i spotted on i think it was sierra white um from isa rising posted uh, a twitter kind of what do you tweet tweet that's what you call it (laughs) Um, she posted a tweet about um about looking for diversity in obvious places but yeah like if you're looking at your music team and you're seeing you're seeing people of color in the congregation but not on stage yes um then somebody's not feeling empowered and it's often not um an intentional thing Mm -hmm. but but i guess that speaks to a different sort of privilege like you know like uh, pe- do people feel empowered and equal in that they can just ask to join the music team or yeah. feel that they have something to offer, um, you know? And, and that was something that kind of got me thinking. Um, and, of course, it's uh, kind of COVID-19 right now. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm just in towns and I'm not going to, ch- to a church <laughs> at the moment. Um, 
it's a bad time for church shopping. <laughs> it is. It is. Although, if you like virtual spaces, it's a perfect time because you get to sample tons of different places without ever leaving your home. And without having to kind of deal with the uh, the gauntlet when you yeah. walk in the door and all these greeters and you're like, oh my God. Exactly. So and all the listservs <laughs> that you get added to. Yep. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> that's a whole that's a whole other thing though isn't it <laughs> so on your in on your uh, website uh, dranika.com um you talk about race uh, reframing race as a positive thing now this mm-hmm. i think should be obvious but isn't obvious because the deficit language can be so built into yes. Um, the way we think about this. So so talk me through kind of bringing some of that positive psych or that positive approach into the way we view diversity. Yeah. So one of the things I, I think I list four things, so I won't go through all four of them, but on the website, I really highlight that when we talk about positive, it's not this idea of passivity, which is what I think people often associate positivity with. Um, yeah. And it's saying, no, we can do hard things and we can talk about hard things without losing sight of the humanity of the person across from us. And so it's because I believe that you have inherent God-given value. That is why I'm going to regard you that way um, throughout this conversation rather than have your opinions or whatever it is that you're saying, you know, used as a marker for determining your worth, right? Um, And so because of that inherent value, you are worthy of respect. And and so that is the approach that I take in all of the workshops, all the trainings that I do. We set that frame from the very beginning for how are we going to engage with each other. So that's one aspect yeah. of the positivity. The other one is recognizing that race is an asset, not a liability. So yes. often, I think, when we, cons- we, we talk about racism, at least historically, um, in the modern era, it's been how can we downplay the importance of race? And that's where the whole colorblind culture came from. If we just act like we're not different, then maybe we won't notice (laughs) that we're different. Um, And things will be fine, right? But what that is, what that actually did is it just says, can we all pretend to be white? Really? It wasn't that we all pretended to be purple or something different. We all pretended to be white. And if we were okay with that, and for white people, that's easy. And for everybody else, it's like, do what you can. And we're (laughs) fine, you know? Um, And so recognizing that race is actually an asset because I have this different skin and this different lived experience. I perhaps come to the table with different ideas and different ways of operating that could actually be valuable for this team, that could be valuable for our relationship and our friendship, our community. And you don't want to erase that difference. You want to find it, you want to use it, and you want to apply it and integrate it as best as you can. So if we're seeing race as an asset, then it's something to be celebrated, it's something to be sought after. Uh, The best example or analogy, uh, forgive me, I tend to speak in analogies, it's just the way my brain works, but uh, (laughs) but the analogy that I use to describe that is uh, if you cook, um, my my family's from the West Indies, and, and so cooking with spices is very very important um oh, and yes. there is yes. a <laughs> if you, you want added a lot of value <laughs> to dishes <laughs> everywhere you are welcome oh, you yeah. are very welcome uh, <laughs> but if you sort of watch you know sort of standard uh 
cooking shows, at least the ones I watch as a kid here in yeah. New York, you know, they'll say, just season with salt and pepper. And you're like, but where's everything else? I'm so confused, <laughs> right? What are you talking about? That's the start um, yeah. of the seasoning. But if you think about just starting with salt and pepper, salt by nature of its existence is distinct from pepper. They're not the same thing. Um, mm. And as much as salt is well-intentioned, it can never be pepper. In fact, if it tried yeah. to be pepper, it would be lousy salt and you wouldn't want it, right? <laughs> so you really yeah. want salt to be salt, but in adding the salt, you realize that there's room for pepper and having the presence of pepper does not take away or diminish the need for salt. It just means yeah. when we have both of them, it makes this dish better. And the absence yeah. of it, we feel it. We feel a difference. Yeah. We feel an absence there. And, you know, you, if you're, again, if you're cooking, you'll be like, mm, it's missing something. What's it missing? You, you stand there yeah. for a little bit and you think, what did I not yeah. put into this pot? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that's, yeah. that's how I want people to think about race. I want you to think of it not as a quota to fill, but as a sense of, you know, we have all these great people here, but something's missing. Like, what, what don't we have? Who isn't yeah. at this table? And when they sit at the table, you're like, ah, there it is. You know, like there's something that you, that's added. And, and you, how do you know if you have a diverse team? Well, when someone is missing, do you feel their absence? Because if you don't, then you probably just have a bunch of people who look different but think exactly the same. And that does not really make you better. That actually, it hails to memory um, something that um, my my ex-husband, um, he, I hate calling him that because he's my best friend. But anyway, Patrick, <laughs> let's call him my Patrick. Um, he worked with um, some women. I think they were from Papua New Guinea. Um, but they were actually from a matriarchal tribe. Mm. And so in this instance, diversity wasn't just about colour. It was actually about recognising these women had such a, a strength and such a different way of viewing the world that came from actually not having grown up within patriarchy. Mm. And, like, so interesting. Like, they, these women didn't struggle against the same like, – they didn't even relate with the same stereotypes that often women come up against in in workplaces Yeah, um, because their experience had been so different. So it was not just about – it's not just about colour, is it? It's about culture and it's about all these different aspects that people bring to the table. Absolutely. And I want to just kind of, um, you, you said the colourblind culture thing mm -hmm. uh, and I want to circle back to it because I've often cringed when people have said, like when the whole topic of race has come up on whether it's, you know, Facebook, the kind of, you know, the place where we do all of our warfare these days, um, <laughs> or wherever it is, people have said, I don't see colour. And it kind of makes me bristle a bit because if you don't see somebody's colour, then you also don't see their struggle. Right. And you also don't see the assets that lie in the different view of the world that they have yes um so but of course that's my uh, i didn't want to be a white kind of karen and uh, <laughs> poor karen. Poor karen she's got a name <laughs> i know a lot of really nice karens <laughs> but you know i didn't want to be that kind of yeah um, I didn't want to be that person who was who's like kind of from my white centric way of viewing the world, telling people how they should be better racial allies. But what do you think about that kind of I don't see color, um, you know, trope? I suppose? Yeah. So so I try to I try to approach things from a place of grace. Uh, that's just mm -hmm. you know my faith leaning. Um, 
Yeah. And I think that's one of the things I, fe- I fear la- is lacking a lot of times in these conversations. There's no willingness for people to um, to be given or to be <laughs> receiving of grace. Uh, and so in yeah. that lens, what I mean by that is there was a time when that was the common thought that we did want yeah. to blend in together, you know, yeah. um, and not seeing color was expected. And to yeah. say that you saw color was a problem. So I think we mm-hmm. want to offer some grace to people and kind of realize that while we have moved away from that, they may still not understand why they need to, right? And yeah. and yeah. so that's one thing. So give some context, I would say, to, to the fact that there was once upon a time when that was okay. And they may just still be stuck in that time. Uh, Secondly, to see the intent, perhaps. Not everyone who says it is well intended, so that's fair. But some of them, I would would offer, may may be very well intentioned. What they're really trying to say is, I don't, you know, use a person's racial identity as a weapon against them. I'm really trying to say that I value people as they are. And if you're a jerk to me, then I'm a jerk to you. If you're kind to me, I'm kind to you. You know, I think that's what they're trying to communicate, but they do it in a way that is micro racially microaggressive, right? And not understanding, not understanding that that's a problem. So, so if (laughs) you see that the person is well intended, then I would kind of offer it as a teaching moment, you know, to say, look, I hear what you're trying to say. At least, at least I believe this is what you're trying to say. Correct me if I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. And most of the times they'll say, no, yes, absolutely. That's exactly what I'm saying. And then you say, okay, so just so you don't get yourself in trouble, let me tell you how you may want to consider saying that the next time, you know? Um, so so that would be the way I'd, I'd approach it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's really helpful because uh, I think we've got this whole cancel culture yeah. thing that's kind of popped up um, where if somebody does one uh, something, you know, wrong or something bad or something not quite on the mark, we jump. Yes. And you can kind of, you know, pile onto people and really, um, and really kind of make it a, a huge deal um, to the detriment of that person. And, and to ourselves. And to yeah, ourselves, yeah. because after a while, you're going to need some of that grace, but you withheld it, and now there's no one yeah. to give it to you, you know? Yeah, yeah exactly. Now, I think the other thing, um, use, of, use of racial stereotypes, even in a positive sense, it can still be quite dismissive yes. of, of the value and complexity in a person. Like, mm-hmm. oh, all, all black women can sing so great, or you know, eh, like, they've not heard me sing, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> it's a kind of trope, or you know, like so. And again, it can be a well-intentioned thing mm-hmm. um, that actually kind of ascribe somebody's value to one particular thing and they might be a pathetic singer you know yeah (laughs) so like so moving past stereotypes as a way of affirming um you know what what other what other keys can you give us for for finding ways to affirm complexity and individuality and and diversity beyond just using the stereotypes that might apply to one group of people. I really think that it's important to expand your box and I mean Mm. that uh socially, but also in the way that you are thinking of groups and people. So if you've ever Mm -hmm. watched the TV show Friends and Mm -hmm. watched the TV show Game of Thrones, uh, you Mm -hmm. will know that those two shows are nothing alike. And, um, And even though they're both, you know, filled with white people in the cast, 
you know that neither show represents in totality all white people everywhere, right? Yeah, there's this, yes, there's yes. this inherent understanding of the diversity that that exists within the white community, and that's accepted, yeah. and that's okay. Mm-hmm. And so, in the same way, I would challenge people to expand their box and see that there's a similar complexity and variation and diversity within other colors and communities yeah. of color. So. Really, there's a great TED Talk. Um, I'm, I don't want to say her name because I'm going to mispronounce it, but she's a Nigerian author, and she wrote mm-hmm. this incredible book called Americana and many others. And she has this really good TED Talk that I believe it's titled The 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 Problem of the Single Narrative or something like that. Um, yeah, okay. But it's really yeah. good. And so she makes this really, I believe, compelling argument for why having a single narrative for a person for a community is so problematic because you what you do mm-hmm. is you push everyone into that that narrative and you completely exclude yeah. all the other narratives that exist so as far yeah. as expanding your box it's really being able to diversify the shows that you watch that have multiple uh, representations of what it means to be black you know watch the yeah. I mean, Bill Cosby is who he is, but the show, The Cosby, was really good. Like, that was good. That family was great. They were fictional, so we're allowed to like them and not like him, right? So you can watch watch the show. Sure, sure it had Bill Cosby, but it also had Lisa Burnett. I mean, she is a boss babe. (laughs) I mean, come on. They're incredible people, and there are great stories in there. So you can watch The Cosby Show, right? You can watch... um, they're just so, you can watch Insecure, so many other, I, and I did, yeah. full confession, I've never seen Insecure, but I do know that it's a very popular show that many of my friends do love and talk yeah. a lot about. But my point is, if you diversify the shows that you watch and you allow yourself to be exposed to multiple narratives about black yeah. people um, or, yeah. pe- or Asian people or whomever, mm-hmm. then you, yeah. what you do, what you see is that, wait a second, this box that I've built that says, oh, this yeah. is my black box, this is my Asian box, this is my native box. When you meet yeah. someone who doesn't fit into that box, then it forces you to think, well, maybe rather than this person is an anomaly that I need to be like, oh my gosh, you're so articulate or you're so, you're not a criminal. You've never seen a gun. I can't (laughs) believe it. Rather than doing that, you realize maybe my box is small and I need to do a better job of expanding it. And those, the being exposed to those varied narratives helps you to just walk around with a bigger box rather than trying to force everyone into the small one that you've constructed. Yeah, and and along that line, highly recommend Little Fires Everywhere. Oh, it's one, yep. It's so good. Reese with a spoon and Kerry Washington. Uh-huh. I mean, even Kerry Washington. <laughs> I'm just like, okay, I'm here for that. Viola Davis, amazing. Yes, <laughs> even like the show Blackish, right? Like watching some, like it's a comedy, it's you know, 28 minutes or so. Like, there are just so many great stories that you can see with different um just about different people and and yeah. and some are great people some are not so great characters right and so you just realize yeah. you don't have to deify every black person for you to not be racist yeah. nor do you need to make them all villains like just as again yeah. just as you have within the white community you can see someone mm-hmm. who does terrible things and see someone who does great things and have them completely continue to exist in your brain you can do that for yeah. people of color too 
Yeah, which is, yeah, I think a very, very important point. Um, now, I guess we're kind of moving on to the second part of the interview now. Sure. Um, where we'll, we'll soon talk about post-traumatic stress disorder. But I wanted to just take a moment to recognize the, the trauma that can be carried by people of color, especially in America, especially this year. Yeah. Um, so how do we as allies create space for that, uh, for, for those people to feel safe um, and, and to be, I guess, when we, how can we spot that trauma? How can we support these people? Um, because as we know, trauma can be, can come in, you know, very different uh, forms and manifestations. Absolutely. And, you know, I think when, when it comes to racial trauma in particular, realize that it can be a result of like, a major experience, like an act of racism or discrimination in the workplace or a hate crime, but it can also result from this accumulation of small everyday occurrences, right? Yeah. Um, and so just realizing that just because a person isn't telling you about, you know, a George Floyd-like experience doesn't yeah. mean that they can't have an experience of racial trauma, right? So so that would be yeah. something just to be aware of. Another thing mm -hmm. I think to note is realizing that it does not have to be experienced personally. It can also be experienced vicariously. So watching yeah. somebody else um, who's part of your community and in racial identity experiencing something pretty traumatic can itself create some racial trauma for, for members yeah. of that community. Um so that so just having that knowledge base, I think, will help help yeah. reduce the likelihood of, of minimizing or dismissing when someone yeah. is trying to tell you something about their experience. Do you know what I mean? Um, mm -hmm. And the third thing I would say in there, too, is realizing that trauma can be historical or intergenerational. So mm. you may find that and I think we can do we can we can tend to do this as a society where we'll think that the trauma that someone's experience is contained to them and to them alone, but yeah. it influences not just them. It, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It affects us. It affects the people who yeah. are connected to us and, and so on and so forth. So you may find that people are experiencing things that may have been rooted in the trauma that their ancestors experienced, right? There are yes. these things called um, survival messages that are passed down. So if yeah. you had a parent, a grandparent maybe, who grew up in Jim Crow era and mm -hmm. just watching a cop or being close to a police officer meant that you were putting yourself in danger, then the messages that they taught their kids may have been, don't look cops in the eye, don't go near them. You know, if they, if yeah. someone says something to you, you, you just apologize. Even if you're in the right, don't even try to advocate for yourself. Just be quiet, yeah. you know? And yeah. so then that gets passed down from generation to generation and you kind of have these yeah. family adages that are shared, but no one really knows that it started out of this effort to just yeah. stay alive. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's actually been kind of echoed, not just in behavioral kind of observations, but also in epigenetic research. Um, and epigenetics is basically the, um, it's like a series of switches on your DNA mm -hmm. that decide whether or not a gene is expressed or not. And there's been some studies that have revealed uh, post-traumatic stress disorder can be um, one of those things that if a parent has post-traumatic stress disorder, um, then the child is more likely to develop it. So these things can actually 
affect DNA. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it is definitely something to be aware of. And when you're talking about entire generations, like over here in Australia, um, our indigenous, our indigenous, our, our first people, oh man, mm. they they went through some stuff and they continue to go through some stuff mm. and. Um, you know, that that shared experience of, of trauma. We had a stolen generation where um, where children were removed from their parents and wow. raised in white homes and there was this white Australia policy where they tried to breed out the black, oh. which I just, which horrifies me. It horrifies me now. Yeah. And um, a few prime ministers back, Kevin Rudd actually um, made a statement of of sorry to to that generation. Yeah. Um, but it's been a highly politicised issue. So recognising generational trauma yep. is yeah, and it influences influences how they parented, right? It influences yep. how they live, their values, their very personality, right? Because if you yes. had someone who went through a ton of trauma, then they may be very uh, distant and disconnected, not very warm or affectionate. And then yeah. you grew up in that home. And so you just learned that maybe either you became overly emotional because you're like, no one ever expressed emotions. So I'm going to lean <laughs> into all of my emotions. Um, or you became kind of yeah. stoic and you sat on your emotions. And then that, of course, that modeling influences your kids and then the yeah. kids after them. So it's really, really important to see that these things don't exist in vacuums. We are. Yeah. A very interdependent people and mm -hmm. our lived yes. experiences impact each other whether we like it or not and if you don't believe me think about the last time you were stuck in traffic for something you did not do but someone <laughs> else chose to do yeah. and now you're late for work you know so we, we affect each other whether we like it or not but to get to your original mm -hmm. question which is how do we support people who've had some kind of a trauma one of the, the things I'd recommend is let them tell you their story you know, yeah. let them tell, if they trust you enough to tell you their story, then you, you can do them the honor of listening to it, you know? Yeah. And and don't try to uh, prove your allegiance or support by jumping in and telling them how well you relate. <laughs> you know, oh, like, there'll be time for that. Like, you know, there'll there will be. There'll be time where you could be like, oh my gosh, my cousin from my sixth grade, yeah. you'll have time to tell us about your cousin. Yeah. But right now, yeah. let's just let yeah. them tell their story, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And when, when appropriate, ask questions and follow up. But let them go at their yes. own pace. Don't try to rush them along or kind of get it all yeah. at once. See, maybe it'll come out in parts. Yeah. Maybe it'll take a while before you really hear all the details. But get, create that space, I think, for them to talk to you. If, if they trust you enough to give you that honor, I think you really should listen to it um, and to yeah. sit with them in that. And if they cry, let them cry. Let them cry. If they're angry, let them be angry because, and this has been a hard-fought lesson for me, no emotion is bad. Yeah. Emotions are there to help us process life. It's what we do with them that either harms us or others um, or can be worked out in a healthy way. Exactly. And, I <laughs> and think, when, I, when and I say harms us or others, I mean repression harms us, Yes, you know, for one thing. And deflection harms others. So if we can find a way in the middle to actually just be sad when we're sad, to be angry when we're yeah. angry, um, to grieve when we need to grieve, that's an important thing. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And yeah. one thing I would just add to that is I think when for some people, um, there can be this fear of if I just let your emotions, if in an effort to respect your emotions, then that means 
everything is you do is fine and it's not yeah right like we can yeah. still have boundaries and accountability yes. and rules <laughs> like just because you're mad you don't get to hit me like that's not okay yeah. you know just because you, there's trauma in your life you don't get to be unkind to me like that's not that's not an excuse for it we can have rules for how we engage with each other but the understanding yeah. of how the trauma is coming out in this way can help me to better support you. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. it's not the absence yeah. of those rules. Um, mm-hmm. That's unnecessary for us to do what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And okay, yes. So I could keep on talking about this forever, but I really do want to get to this kind of <laughs> second topic, that, sure. which was the original one that I sought you out for. Um, and that is post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm-hmm. Now, this podcast, Unchurchable, came out of my desire to stay engaged with faith and spirituality after having um, lost community and, and lost kind of church. I started blogging while I was deconstructing and along the way met this incredible tribe of people and made me, made, made me realise I'm not alone. Mm. There are a lot of people out there who have experienced trauma in church, um, who have, you know, or who have had churches handle their trauma poorly. Um, and sadly, there's a lot of people that have kind of walked away from toxic situations with post-traumatic stress disorder or complex PTSD. I had a, quest- I had a question from a listener and, and um, he asked me how I handle my own mm. PTSD. And the answer to that is I've had a lot of therapy. Mm-hmm. Good answer. <laughs> um, so, but I, and, and I didn't want to answer this question for this person who was also going through therapy. If you think you have PTSD, people, go find a therapist. Please. But <laughs> I also wanted to create some space on, on the podcast to actually talk about this phenomenon of, um, of post-traumatic stress disorder, how it differs from complex post-traumatic stress disorder, and, you know, what people can expect going forward if they get the treatment they need. Yeah. So enter Dr. Anika, the <laughs> clinical psychologist. <laughs> For people who are new to this topic, uh, what is PTSD and how does it differ from CPTSD? That's a good question. Uh, so PTSD, which is post-traumatic stress disorder, um, it is something that is defined and, and diagnosed here in the States and I believe in several other countries too with a diagnostic, diagnostic statistical manual. There we go. Um, the fifth version right now is the latest version. And yeah. within that, there's a whole criteria, right? So when it comes to any diagnoses that we use in, in the clinical clinical world, we go to this manual for language yeah. and for um for kind of a universal sort of understanding about what classifies as something, what doesn't. Um, and so there's a, a I want to say, um, I'm going to eyeball it and say maybe like eight different criteria that need to be fulfilled in order for PTSD to be given. It's quite long. Yeah. I'm not going to go through all of it, but I'm going to give you some high points um, for mm-hmm. PTSD. So it's something that is diagnosed in, in people ages six and older. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to meet a full criteria for you 
for you to be given this diagnosis. But for the first criteria, you need to be exposed to death, threatened death, actual or threatened serious injury, actual or threatened sexual violence. And that can come in the form of a direct exposure, witnessing the trauma, learning that a close relative or friend had been exposed to the trauma, or perhaps indirect exposure to sort of like the, the adverse details of the trauma, and usually you'll, yep. you'll reserve this part for um, maybe like a first responder. So you weren't involved yep. in it, but you showed up and you kind of saw the yep. aftermath. And that was a traumatic yep. experience. Um, mm-hmm. The person, in addition to that, will likely have um, some sort of intrusive symptoms. So that could be unwanted mem- or upsetting memories or nightmares or flashbacks. Kind of the, the stuff yep. you may see in a movie like Saving Private Ryan or something. Um, yes, yes, you yes. will see, uh, you need to have some kind of avoidance of some kind that's to some trauma-related stimuli. So that could be um, trauma-related thoughts and feelings, so sensations Mm -hmm. or thoughts that come up that you want to find yourself avoiding. Like that might be uh, one of the things that's happening and that will fulfill that criteria. Or it might be that you are trying to avoid external reminders of it. So maybe you're not going to certain places or doing certain Mm -hmm. activities because it's related to this trauma in some way and you're avoiding them. Um, there's another criteria, which is more like this negative alterations in your mood or your cognitions. And so mm-hmm. maybe there are thoughts and feelings that you have that are negative that may have begun, or perhaps they were worsened or amplified as a result yeah. of the trauma. And so you might find that, um, you might be engaging in sort of exaggerated blame of yourself, of others, you know, uh-huh. um, yeah. the world maybe. Uh, maybe yeah. you are um, just having very negative affect, which is just a fancy way of saying that maybe you're really down, you're really low, yeah. irritable, you know, that kind of thing. Um, feeling isolated. Maybe you've lost interest in things you typically are interested in in, in doing. Maybe you yeah. have a hard time yeah. even remembering events of the trauma, you know, that kind of stuff. There's also yeah. this sort of um, alterations in arousal and reactivity. So you, again, may find yourself being really irritable or aggressive. Maybe there's some hypervigilance yeah. that's happening there, difficulty sleeping or concentrating. Even risky or destructive behavior may be a result. And after yeah. all of that, <laughs> it's important, before the diagnosis can be given, it's important that, one, these have been occurring for over a month. So it can't just mm-hmm. be, you know, two weeks has passed and I've been experiencing this. We need to have over a month um, yeah. of these symptoms going. It needs to not be caused by any particular substance or medical condition or illness of some yeah. kind. So they can, mm-hmm. basically, there can't be another explanation for why the, this is yeah. happening outside of the trauma. Um, and and this goes for all diagnoses. It has to cause some significant distress or impair functioning in some area yeah. of your life, whether socially or occupationally, right? Because if yeah, all this yeah. stuff is happening, but you're like, I'm good, my life's fine, we wouldn't give you the diagnosis. It has to be causing some sort of distress to you. So mm-hmm. those are, are kind of like, the, you know, the overall lens that we look to before we would even give a PTSD diagnosis. But what makes yeah. CPTSD different is the C word. And so when you hear the, the C, I want you to think of not just complex, but I want you to think of chronic. I want you to think yeah. of, you know, continued, right? Childhood even. Um, and yeah. that just means that 
while the PTSD diagnosis often refers to a, perhaps like a finite or a single event trauma that has happened, yeah. the complex trauma refers to something that was long term, that was ongoing or repeated, likely over the course of months or even years. Yeah. Um, and it yeah. typically dates back to childhood, though it does not have to be only childhood, but it typically would mm-hmm. date back to it. Um, and so that yeah. sort of distinction is, is where it comes. Uh, so yeah, and so the the DSM uh, just for uh, you, this may not matter at all to your viewers, but just so you know, um, the DSM does not distinguish between PTSD and CPTSD. It's a relatively new kind of you know language. Yeah, okay. yep. Um, yep. But the International Classification of Diseases, which ICD, which is kind of the companion to the DSM, does, and what it does is kind yeah. of has one sort of category for like, disorders of stress, and underneath you have PTSD and CPTSD. So that's where. Yep. You find that distinction, um, but here in the states, we kind of put them all under the heading of PTSD. Um, yeah. So there's that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's interesting to see there's kind of patterns of um, you know a, a bit of a move to include religious trauma syndrome mm-hmm. uh, kind of within that same same kind of area. Although I think the DSM six is probably a long way off. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> But um, so the disorder itself is um, sadly not uncommon. Um, Like we used to think of it just with veterans Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, yes, first responders. So, so, you know, police or, or, you know, ambulance, paramedics, that kind of thing. Um, But but abuse scenarios or um, and, and, you know, even even I think, uh, racial trauma um, is is where some of that chronic or complex PTSD can kick in. Mm. So treatment, in terms of treatment, look, if somebody thinks that they have this, then the place to go is your doctor yep. um, and, and then your therapist. <laughs> but <laughs> usually cognitive behavioural therapy is yeah. kind of, yep. So there, are, so there are a number of, of treatments. You know, there. I don't think they've yet found what they would say the gold standard. Although I'm sure you'll have mm-hmm. people in different camps arguing that theirs yeah. is the gold standard. There is something called trauma focused CP, uh, CPT, which is uh, trauma focused cognitive behavioral therapy, and mm-hmm. that I have a little handout that I'll share with you that maybe you can give to your um, your viewers if uh, attached to your show notes or something. Um, yeah, but. What that basically is, it's for it's really for uh, for children and for adolescents, uh, for young people who've had sort of more of this complex trauma experience or just traumatic experiences yeah. in general. Uh, and it's really working with them to reframe their trauma narrative and really challenge thoughts that are destructive and come up with new behavioral patterns. And for people who are not familiar with, with CBT, um, which is my theoretical orientation, by the way, um, yeah. it just basically means that we believe the way that you think, the way that you feel, and the way that you behave are all interrelated. And making a yeah. change in one of those areas will cause a change in the other two. So if you're feeling really yeah. down, uh, you don't really, you know, you don't feel able to change that feeling, um, and mm-hmm. you're thinking no one likes me, mm-hmm. and you're stuck in your in your inside. The behavior of going outside can create the opportunity where you may feel a little bit better and then you may start thinking, well, maybe not everyone, maybe some people like me, you know? Yeah. Um, and yeah. so that's kind of the, the way that we, we sort of 
see it and see those three things being related. So with the trauma piece, it just takes it further and really looking into the trauma experience and the narrative that comes up like that. It's my fault if I hadn't done, you know, that kind of thing and really helping them to process it and and come up with a new way of thinking about themselves and and what they've experienced. And it's and, and so you may find that again if you're dealing with adolescents um you're dealing with kids uh tfcbt is really good for bringing the whole family into the treatment and helping the kids to sort yeah. of like have a new way of reframing and dealing with things um yeah. but of course cognitive behavioral therapy in general can be quite helpful for someone who's had a traumatic experience and is dealing with with uh, cbt mm-hmm. another thing though you may be familiar with this too is emdr Um, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing treatment. It's very popular here. Um, And it's also been used quite a bit in helping people um, dealing with some of the, like the avoidance stuff that comes up Mm -hmm. around the trauma, the hyper arousal that comes up there, you know, the re-experiencing of the trauma. And in a nutshell, I'm I'm not going to do it justice because I haven't studied it a whole lot, but, yeah. My some in a nutshell, what it kind of does is it helps you. Like, for example, though your your therapist sort of may move their finger, and with your eye, you may track them um, mm-hmm. while you're telling the the events, perhaps of your trauma. And then when there's a certain again, I'm not going to say this well. There's a certain sort of reaction that you get that they, yeah. that may be a signal that we need to process this or kind of manage this. And uh-huh. the whole idea is that your body is reacting to whatever this event is. And if we can help your body yeah. to feel more settled and to feel safe, then you can sort of go through the trauma and the details of it without having that, um, I want to say, physical reaction to it. Yeah. You know, you can kind of almost disconnect the two a little bit. Yeah, because, I mean, the thing with PTSD really is that the body does remember, yeah. <laughs> isn't it? Like you the, you can have, and, and I, I think people think of flashbacks, they think of kind of this very visual thing, but it can be an emotional flashback mm-hmm. or it can be that elevated heart rate or the taste of metal in your mouth or it can be, uh, which then causes you to look for the stimuli that puts you at risk. Exactly. And there may be none at that. Yes. You know, it, might, it, it might have just been something so fleeting that reminded you of something the in the environment around yeah now a lot of people uh you know might freak out at the idea of cognitive behavioral therapy um you know changing the way i think about something Mm -hmm. doesn't mean and this is an important thing to know cognitive behavioral therapy isn't going to make you think that your abuser was a good thing no is it no <laughs> no that would be malpractice no malpractice. <laughs> yeah, and so um, and i think it's important too to kind of realize that you know when we're when we're talking about reframing we're not trying to say that something that was bad was good we're not lying about the facts we're just mm-hmm. merely we are merely challenging perhaps some of the conclusions and assumptions that you're making in light of that fact yes that is, I think, a really important thing. Um, sadly, sadly, um, a lot of the stories that I've heard over the last few years have involved people kind of making disclosures um, and, you know, it might have been to churches or, or whatnot about situations mm-hmm. and then being encouraged to forgive or move on mm-hmm. or not tarnish someone's reputation. Mm-hmm. Um 
in a clinical setting, that would be called malpractice. I certainly um, would call it that. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And, and in a in a church setting, I'm I'm saying that should be called malpractice yeah, as well, yeah. because um, you know Jesus wasn't on the side of um, of 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 the system he was on the side of the downtrodden and he was on the side of the marginalized and you know he was about justice and and love so that it has always seemed odd to me when churches have um you know kind of bunkered down to to protect an abuser or whatnot so if 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 somebody is fearing cognitive behavioral therapy because they've had that experience don't. <laughs> yeah, it's likely because. that person was not practicing CBT. <laughs> they were no, trying to no. sort of manipulate you. That sounds quite manipulative and abusive in its own right. It does not sound like it was helpful. And an um, important distinction that, that covering up abuse is re-traumatization. It, yeah. is, it is its own kind of abuse. So um, some keys for somebody who, okay, who might have really struggled with this year that might have found this year has unearthed feelings of not being safe or or not being listened to or feelings of not being in control of their life as a clinical psychologist you know what are some tips that you can give apart from you know get yourself into a doctor now yeah um, (laughs) on kind of restoring our sense of safety and our sense of self-worth that's a good point it's a really good question because it because the thing that you do find with with, uh, people who've experienced trauma is this tendency to sort of um superimpose the trauma onto everyday experiences right so someone Mm -hmm. looks at you in a funny way and it triggers something about an abuse experience that you've had and so it goes from being a benign look to an attack and or you know or something that makes you feel unsafe and then you respond in that way um yeah and so so it's really important to kind of um one of the things I, I think first is to give a name to the emotion that you're experiencing, right? If you yeah. can give language to it, I think it just helps us to then see that the emotion itself is not a problem. Just like you said before, it's really what mm. we do with it that becomes problematic. But if we can recognize that emotion as legit, it's real, you're feeling it. Um, yeah. And then decide what you want to do with it after you've acknowledged it. I think makes you kind of sit in a, in a position of agency rather than feeling um, like you are beholden to your feelings. So, yeah, I would say first yeah. to just give a name to what it is that you're feeling. Are you are you feeling angry? Are you feeling rage? Are you feeling disappointment? Sadness? Guilt? What are mm-hmm. you feeling? Say it. You know, write it down. Yeah. And if if possible, you maybe say, "Why am I feeling this way?" If you if you're in that headspace to to do that, um, yeah. But just really get curious about what that emotion is. I think is is something that's helpful. Yeah, um, a big thing for me has been uh, not feeling shame over having PTSD or CPTSD. Mm-hmm. The shame does not belong to the person who has it because it's actually the brain has done an incredible job of coping with some really bizarre and threatening situations um the brain has done an incredible job helping you survive that so you don't need to have shame over actually having a diagnosis of a mental illness or Mm -hmm. or of a trauma related mental illness that's not where the shame belongs the shame belongs on the person who's inflicted you know or, you know, if, if or of course, if it's a car accident, I mean, you know, accidents happen or, you know, whatever. But, um, you know, you shouldn't feel shame over having a diagnosis 
right and i and i think seeing the diagnosis more as a um just as you know not something to that you necessarily have to own and carry around with you like a like a you know like a tattoo (laughs) but really more of just something that is used to guide your treatment right now that we know what it is that's happening to you now we can kind of decide how we can best help you it gives language right it's language for explaining what what we're dealing with and what's happening it doesn't have to be like a life sentence that you are you know, mm-hmm. being carted off with because I do think people get very fearful. And and let's be honest, right? Diagnoses have been used to cause harm, right? People have used yeah. um, the labels that come with it to marginalize or to you know harm harm people in some ways. So I get the the natural weariness that comes with being told that you have yeah. a diagnosis, right? But I do think if you if you with a therapist and and a, and a psychiatrist that you really like and trust and, and know that are just looking to help you, then then you just see that that diagnosis there is a label that they're using to guide treatment rather than yeah. um, just kind of put you in a box. Yeah, exactly. Now, in terms of, you know, treatment and prognosis, you've used an important word there because often people can get a diagnosis like this and go, oh, life sentence. Yeah. But it's not, is it? It doesn't have to be. And again, that answer that you're not going to like, it depends, right, on the person (laughs) Um, and the trauma. And, you know, especially with complex PTSD, because it's such a relatively new um, research area, I I don't think the experience of it is new, right? But the looking at it as a distinct um, diagnosis to be investigated is relatively new in the field and there's again still some argument about what's the best form of treatment and all that and research to be done but so that being said there is you know it's shown that it's a little bit tougher you know when it's a childhood related uh trauma than when it's something that's happened later in life and that's just because you've Mm -hmm. sat with it longer you know um other things that affect prognosis is how quickly you get treatment if you've kind of not gotten treatment soon and you delayed it for years or however long that could also have an influence and how effective it is also your readiness right somebody who's not dealt with their trauma for 15 years but are in a place where they're like i really don't want this dominating my life and my identity anymore maybe mm-hmm. way may see greater gains in their treatment than somebody who is like i'm only here because my mom says i have to be so whatever you know <laughs> what i mean um yeah. so yeah. i think your your readiness for treatment is also going to play a huge role in in that experience um yeah. you know and also recognizing that the way that I, I kind of describe certain things to my clients, again, with analogies, I, I will say, you know, if you you broke a glass, you know, like a dish glass or a drinking glass or something, and you picked up all the pieces, you swept the floor really nicely, maybe you even vacuumed, and you're like, okay, I'm good. <laughs> and two days yeah. later, you walked on that same spot, and then you got it pricking your finger or your foot, sorry, and yeah. you're like, Darn it! I just I clean this whole thing perfectly. How is it possible that there's a shard of glass still here and it's causing me pain yeah. now? You know, yeah. Um, and and you kind of think of it like that, where you can, you know, you sat with it, you dealt with it. Maybe the big pieces you picked up and you put them away, but you know, a few yeah. months, a few years later, someone or something shows up and maybe just hits on a little shard, a part of the trauma, part of the experience that you hadn't yeah. really delved into. And it doesn't mean that all the work that you did before didn't work. It just means that now you need some time to look at that shard. You need to sit yeah. down and pull that piece out. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so realizing that you could have done a good bit of work and felt good about it and 
And then yeah. maybe another time you have to go back and maybe work with another therapist on something a little bit mm-hmm. different. So maybe it's like you realize that the 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 traumatic thing that happened wasn't your fault and you are not to blame and you know how to take care of yourself and take up space and 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 yeah. recognize and validate your emotions but maybe that forgiveness piece is still really hard and and forgiveness is not for the other person i think we know that right it's not about yeah. them it's about you saying i no longer want you to have control over how i feel and yes. if i release this then it's me um releasing the weight it's had on me it's not me saying what you did was okay and so i think um so maybe you're finding that whenever their name comes up or anyone who has a name like theirs again you were talking about karen before you know it's like if i hear the name karen one more time you know like you just get upset um then you maybe that's the the little shard that you need to work on which is you know what does it mean to forgive someone who's harmed me in this way and how can i make peace with it without saying that what they did was all right so so realizing that it may not be all just, you know, I went to therapy and I worked on it and done. You know, it might be I worked mm-hmm. on this part of it or I was ready to work on this part, but I wasn't ready to work on this part. And now here we are 10 years later and I'm ready to work on this part. Yeah. I, I laughed when you, you said that because, like, now that I'm a single girl and I'm on, I'm on dating apps, uh, <laughs> <laughs> there are some names I swipe left on um, but yeah, like that's just it's a it's a funny thing. But it's interesting what you said said there about uh, you know experiencing something again. And it, I think the tendency, I mean, I think the tendency can be to catastrophize and think the whole yeah. kit and caboodle is going to come back at you if you experience yeah. one symptom, um, which is not necessarily true. And no. you also mentioned a couple of other things that I do want to kind of speak to. Um, is if you got treatment straight away is different than if you got treatment years later. For me, it was around eight years um, between me experiencing the trauma and um, and getting treatment. Mm. Well, yeah. So and so that could mean that I'm not a, a good candidate, but I did the work, um, and you know some of that work is around awareness and early yeah. intervention. Like if I. Um, you know, like if I, I, and it barely happens anymore because the other thing that I've had to do is, um, you know, work on my own sense of personal safety and yeah. personal agency. And when I got to a point where I was like, okay, I am in control of my decisions. I am in control of when I arrive or leave a yes. place. I'm in control of where I attend church. I'm in control of my relationships. Um, with that sense of personal safety, which also means withholding my address from some people. Yeah. Um, with that sense of personal safety, I was I was able to feel, you know, I was able to sleep better. Mm. I was able to, and getting good rest is so important. Um, and so now you like I I don't have lots of flashbacks or lots of episodes as I call them. Mm. Um, they happen once in a blue moon, but when they do happen. I just have to realize it's a time for self-care and yeah. not a time for shame or yeah. thinking that I'm in the grip of the condition anymore. Yeah. Um, I did have a therapist years back and that kind of came to an end and I was doing really well. And then in more difficult times, I'm like, okay, I'm going to get a therapist again. And mm-hmm. it may not necessarily be because of the re-emergence of PTS symptoms. It may just be because therapists help i mean 2020 <laughs> has been a year yes. people it has been a year for everyone 
um, where we've dealt with kind of, you know, this kind of feeling of being locked in um, globally almost, which can actually really, for certain individuals, spike some of those, like that glass shard yeah. when, you thought, when you thought it all cleaned up. Um, there can be things that are triggered in a year where you feel like you're kind of surrounded with calamity. And in those times, therapy matters. It does. It does matter. <laughs> and. And it's, um, I'd also say that there's a difference between therapy and a well-meaning friend who gives good advice. Yeah. <laughs> um, while there's a place for both, the well-meaning friend will tell you what they think because they know you. Yeah. Whereas the therapist will counsel you according to your own values and goals. Yes. And will hopefully make less assumptions. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us what to look for in a good therapist. Oh, that's a, such a good question because I do think that I've certainly heard that, right, where people will be like, oh, why do I need you? I can just talk to my friend, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. it, I, I would sort of say, and this is sort of silly, but it's kind of like watching somebody make an amazing dish on a cooking show. Maybe I'm hungry because I keep bringing up food. but um, <laughs> I'm hungry. <laughs> but, you know, you're, you're like, I can do that. I don't need to like go to a restaurant, you know, but you're like, there's something different about this professional making this dish than me making it, you know, or, mm-hmm. a, or a hairdresser doing a particular style. You're like, yes, I, yes. You, I could paint my house myself, but somebody painting it professionally, somehow it comes out a little bit nicer um, yeah. when they do it. And so uh, that's just a silly way of saying, yes, please. We There is a licensure and training and years of schooling for a reason. It's not just because we are bored right um so when it comes to looking for a therapist i think it's important to know that there's there's never going to be a perfect fit right you're not going to find somebody who's going to do everything all the time everywhere uh but that being said it is important to you know inquire about their therapeutic style if you had therapy before maybe you know what works for you and what doesn't you know if, and maybe yeah. it's just like i i've had a therapist before and they did cbt cbt and i really liked it and so when you're looking for a new therapist ask them do you practice cbt yeah. and that could be a great criteria by which you decide yes or no on a person you yeah. know um yeah. so inquire about the therapeutic style and, and most therapists are more than happy to tell you if they haven't already put it in put it in their website or in their materials so you'll see it there let them know what you're looking for support on you know because then again it's malpractice to say yes i can do something when i don't have any expertise in that so Mm -hmm. if they are like you know what i can i can work with people with with some trauma issues but what you're talking about seems like it's some really intense complex ptsd stuff and that's not really my training so i can offer you some referrals to somebody who does more of that work you know what i mean um and so that's that's another thing that you want to do so you want to look at their theoretical orientation to kind of get a sense of if it's a good fit for you um you want to tell them what your work what you're wanting support on so then they can let you know if that's something they feel skilled in helping you with and if not then maybe they'll have some ideas about who can help you with something um you can also if you haven't had therapy before and like, I don't know what I like, I don't know what, what works for mm-hmm. me, um, yes. then you can just sort of say, again, they, you let them tell you what the theoretical orientation is like, how do they approach therapy? Just kind of say, you know, kind of help me understand how, how do you typically, yeah. what is the typical session with you look and feel like? You know, maybe you can ask yeah. them something like that. And then 
if it seems like you're willing, you know, like it's a good, you want to try at least, then contract with them and say, you know, let's perhaps do about three, four sessions together. Yeah. And at the end of that, maybe we can, you know, reevaluate if this is a good fit. And if it isn't, then maybe we can talk about ways we can make it better. And if it just isn't really yeah. like just that I'm not the person for you, then we'll contract to end. You know, I really think having a good sort of end in an appropriate way of saying, I don't think this is a good fit. Is itself a therapeutic and important life lesson, you know, yes. within that space. Yes. So just being able to, to have that conversation with your therapist. I know people, because they're, I don't know, it's, it's awkward, it's vulnerable, it's nerve wracking. You don't want to make them mad. You just kind of ghost your therapist. Don't ghost your therapist, please. <laughs> you know, just, just have a conversation with them. Just say, you know, I, I think you're lovely, but I just, I'm not sure you're my fit. And, they may feel exactly the same way. They may they may say, you know what, that's okay. I get that. I hear it. And if you want to be happy to refer you to someone, if you have a good therapist, they will say that. They will say, would you like referrals? Would you like me to help you to perhaps see if there's anyone I know in my network who could be a good yeah. fit for you? Because the goal is to get you support. It's not to just hold you hostage. You know what I'm saying? Um, exactly. So, yeah, so, exactly. So we see that you have agency in, in that relationship too. Because agency is a very, like, it's an empowering thing to, to know that you have choice and that you have power in a situation to make choices. Yeah. Um, I, it's, it's particularly within the religious trauma crowd. <laughs> I hate that I call it a crowd. It's a crowd. There's a lot of us. Um, we've been taught to kind of give our power away. It yeah. was kind of given across to someone else. It might have been a pastor or a leader or a disciple or someone we were accountable to. I've also sadly heard people that were encouraged not to have secular counsellors mm. um, and so only went to pastoral counsellors. And it's actually in, in many of these situations quite detrimental to their ongoing health because a good counsellor or a good therapist isn't going to discourage you from taking part in something that is helpful to mm -hmm. you, i.e. a healthy faith community, but they are going to be skilled enough to, you know, to, to kind of counsel you in line with your own values if that's what's needed. So, yeah, you can actually make a choice to, you know, you can shop around for therapists, yeah. you can shop around for the right fit. Um and I will say this because I lived in a small town that was three hours outside of my or two and a half out, hours outside of my state capital city. Um, I actually ended up going to a counsellor in in Melbourne. So mm. it, it involved driving two and a half hours. It was wow. a full day out. Yeah. But it was because um, Patrick and I had looked and we had a shopping list of who we were, of what we were looking for mm -hmm. in in a therapist and, um, you know, we wanted somebody who understood certain very specific things. Yeah. We didn't think we'd find someone who could cover kind of all of them, but we did find, yeah. a, find a firm. And, look, it yes, it's a full day out, which was great for us at the time because we had, like, little kids, so we'd leave them with a babysitter mm. and we'd get breakfast and, <laughs> and, <laughs> and then have therapy. And, and I think a good therapist will always leave you feeling um, stable, mm. they won't leave you feeling more distressed. If you leave feeling more distressed, it's time to shop on, isn't it? I mean, yes, but I also think, you know, it's also recognizing that, um, okay, I'm trying to think of a, a good way to say this. Recognize your own tendency to sabotage your treatment because you are not ready. 
to engage Ooh, with yes. it, right? <laughs> yes. And so you may find yourself being very nitpicky about your therapist, not because they're, they can't help you or they're not a good fit, but because you want them to be perfect before you yeah. deal with your stuff. Um, and because mm-hmm. you don't really want to deal with your stuff, you just find, you keep firing therapists left and right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, yes. And so then yes. that becomes sort of part of your own um, dysfunctionality, if we're to kind of say yeah. that, you know, that you it yeah. kind of looking for a therapist becomes part of your part of your thing um a part of your trauma you know yeah part of your avoidance um and so just even being willing to call yourself out on that too but yes by all means if you're consistently i wouldn't say you know you just one time left felt a little bit dysregulated and that's the end of it but if you're consistently leaving the treatment um and and you're you're feeling worse off than you did. And again, I, I, I'm trying to be careful only because trauma is is a dysregulating thing to go into yeah, and course, to talk about. And you're going to have moments where you are feeling like I wasn't thinking about this stuff before, but now we're looking at it. I feel it. You know what I mean? Or I wasn't. I didn't have yeah. flashbacks or nightmares, but now that we've been talking about it, I am. So maybe I should stop. You know, like I would say, yeah. no, please continue. But again, yes. if you are putting in energy and time into something and you're not feeling any more skilled perhaps that's the word i would go for if you're feeling good yeah yeah yeah, if you're not feeling skilled to how to deal with even a little bit of what's going on then i would say it's time to find a new therapist yeah that's that's a really important distinction and i'm glad that you kind of rephrased it that way because by nature therapy is going to take you into some dark territory But it should take you into that territory and make you feel more skilled to deal with yeah. it. Like, um, so yeah, like, and and therapists are often quite good at spotting red herrings. Yes, and, <laughs> and you back. Yes, yes. <laughs> or spotting escalations. Like, if, if they might hear your breath quicken or like see you start to perspire and I go okay let's just let's just breathe and let's just come back to you know so um I yes like I've been to a few different therapists over the years and each one has had a very different um style but each one has been helpful at the time Mm -hmm. nobody likes to have to look their trauma in the face but this is this is the way to heal it is is to actually do the work um so i think you've given us some really valuable tips on what to look for um and and you know how to um and how to how to be kind to ourselves during this time and put the right degree of responsibility in terms of actually um staying the course so um yeah thank you dr aninka nice Tell us where we can find you on the interwebs yes. so that people can go and look up some of your stuff and look in the show notes because there'll be a handout as well. <laughs> Absolutely. So thank you again so much for having me, Kit. It's such fun talking about this stuff and you you bring a wealth of knowledge to it as well. So I think your listeners <laughs> are definitely fortunate for having having you with this background and this vulnerability Which because it's not easy to say any of this out loud. Um, oh, so thank, thank you. you. <laughs> thank you for thank modeling you. that for for them at the very least, if not, you know, helping them to confront their own stuff. Um, but yes, you can absolutely find me on the interweb at www.dranika and doctor is spelled out. So it's D-O-C-T-O-R. 
and Anika is A-N-I-C-A dot com. On there, you will find uh, my bio. You'll find out exactly what is Race Positive and why we created it. Um, you'll find out a bit about some of the workshops and trainings that we offer. One of the things that we do is something called Race Talks with Dr. Anika, where I get people into a room, um, not physically anymore. We do it virtually. <laughs> so you can join us in from wherever yeah. you are in Australia. Um, and we really, I will pick maybe like a topic that's race related and we'll talk about that so things that we've talked about in the past are um, intent versus impact cultural appropriation versus cultural appreciation how do you talk Mm -hmm. to kids about racism and and the format is quite simple I have a list of questions that I go through and we just have a giant group discussion about it and we always have a very multiracial multi-ethnic audience you know so there's is uh, there's really no um no group that is excluded in any way and and being able to have just diverse opinions and thoughts is wonderful um and i'll always leave the the talk giving people some tips and recommendations for things that they can do but that's just one of the ways that that i can um sort of create this space for these conversations to happen um but on my website i also have uh i have some podcast episodes that I put out. Um, I started a podcast earlier this year, have not touched it since the pandemic has hit. Um, but it's called Race Matters, a race positive production, and it's available on iTunes and Spotify and everywhere else. Um, but you'll find the two episodes that I have recorded for it on my website as well um, under that heading. And uh, during COVID, instead of doing my podcast, I decided to do this very short, uh, I don't know, talk show, I guess you can say. It's called Surviving oh. COVID with Dr. Nika, and I interviewed a bunch of different experts in different areas, um, people who are really good at home organizing to authors and incredible other psychologists, you know, talking about couples therapy or, you know, being a mom or be, you know, all these different things. So how do you take care of yourself in the middle of a pandemic with your family um, and all these different aspects? So uh, so I did that. So you could, again, find all the links to that on my website. And and lastly, there's something I have there that's called What You're Reading, because I'm always reading. And yes. I, uh, I find that, you know, people will give you a list of books to read, but they won't tell you why you should read the book, except that it's good. <laughs> and so what I've done is I created these very short videos, maybe three minutes, I think it's, it's the longest one. And books that I've all personally read and loved because I thought they handled the topic of race really, really well. I give like just three points, three takeaways that I got from the book and why I think you should read it. And it's on there. So you can kind of peruse my my what to read in... tab and just see maybe there's a couple books that you hadn't heard about a books that you did hear about and you're like why should i read this and you can get my little tidbits on why i think it's a fantastic book so those are all available wow. on my website but i'm also on the twitter of course so it's at dr anika i'm on instagram and it's dr underscore anika i'm on facebook dr anika so you can find me everywhere linkedin Wherever I am, you're welcome. (laughs) Amazing, amazing. So much good content that um, really timely to engage with. So I hope there's been a lot covered in today's uh, session, but I really really hope that there was a few things that that stuck out to me. The balance of giving ourselves grace Mm. and giving ourselves, uh, you know, 
space to grow as well as holding ourselves responsible when we're running from uncomfortable um, topics, perhaps at our own detriment, whether that be um, in the race relations space or whether it's in the mental health space. Um, There's a balance between self-care and personal responsibility, um, but they actually combine to create a more empowered, more well-rounded human. And, Um. you know, I think that's what we're all shooting for. So um, for people out there who who have gone through um, any sort of trauma and think that you might have post-traumatic stress disorder or a stress-related illness, I would encourage you to call your GP. Mm-hmm. If you're in Australia, call Beyond Blue um, or Lifeline. They are excellent. They are just so good because um, they really understand that oftentimes when people are feeling quite distressed, it can be really difficult to make that first step yeah. in terms of caring for your mental health. But Beyond Blue and Lifeline in Australia are two brilliant places that you can go. Um, in America, who would you call? Do you know of any helplines off the top of your head? Well, I would say anything? if you are here in the States, so you probably should look at your, um, go to your insurance provider. You can go to mm-hmm. their website or call them and you can just give them your zip code and tell them the area you're in and they will give you uh, some names of people in your area um, they yeah. that you know will we'll be sure to take your insurance. And then when you get those names, you call them and do just as I said, you tell them your name, you tell them what you're looking for and you, and you ask them when they're available, you know? Um, yeah. And then you yeah. take it from there. Yeah. And if you're feeling quite distressed, they'll be able to help you through that process. Yeah. Um, Cause this is all about ascertaining safety first and then moving on to dealing with the issues that are causing you distress or dysregulation or whatever it is. Um, From somebody who left her diagnosis way too late, um, I can tell you that there is improvement ahead. Yes. Um, And I can tell you that even though sometimes we have setbacks, it's okay. And when you can sit and recognize that it's okay, it just means that my attention is being called to something. Mm. And, you know, I I go take a nap first. I make make myself a cup of tea or I take a nap or I I make myself feel better. And then the next day I go, okay, now let's think about this. So all of us will have our own ways towards self-care. But there is definitely a place for professionals in all of this. Dr. Anika, one of the best in the business, I'd have to say. Oh, thank you. <laughs> You've lived up to your reputation. <laughs> thank you so much for your time today. Of I'm course. Kate Kennedy, and this is Unchurchable. Bye, everyone.